A U.S.-Russian dual citizen has been arrested in Russia on charges of treason for allegedly donating to a Ukrainian charity. It's Thursday, February 22nd. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, Nikki Haley explains why she's staying in the race for the GOP presidential nomination, regardless of how she does in her home state of South Carolina's primary. We have to go and focus on what the newer generation wants, what we need to do going forward. And it's not having two 80-year-old candidates. I think that's a problem. Also this hour, a new study finds that nearly half of American adults know someone who died from an overdose. Plus, as negotiations over a ceasefire in Gaza continue, at issue is what happens to the bodies of fighters and hostages. The basic assumption in Israel is that Hamas will hold on to hostages living or dead as an insurance policy. Mostly sunny and low 40s today. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Korva Coleman. Israeli police say Palestinian gunmen opened fire in the occupied West Bank today, killing at least one Israeli motorist and wounding at least eight other people. And Israel says it shot down a rocket near the Red Sea. NPR's Daniel Estrin has more from Tel Aviv. The Israel-Hamas war has inflamed tensions in the region outside Gaza. In the West Bank, Israeli police say a trio of Palestinian gunmen carried out the fatal shooting on a main road near Jerusalem. And Iranian-backed Houthi rebels in Yemen appear to be behind more rocket attacks in response to the war in Gaza. A ship caught on fire in the Gulf of Aden, and air raid sirens wailed in the southern Israeli resort city of Eilat on the Red Sea, as an Israeli anti-missile system intercepted a rocket before it reached Israeli territory. And Israel's army says it continues to fight Hamas in Gaza City and southern Gaza. Gaza health officials say in the past day nearly 100 Palestinians were killed in Israeli strikes. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, Tel Aviv. The Biden administration says it's poised to issue new sanctions against Russia. These are to be announced tomorrow, one week after the death of Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny. U.S. officials blame Russian President Vladimir Putin for his death. U.S. officials have not laid out the details of the sanctions, but say they will be robust. A California woman who was a dual citizen of the U.S. and Russia has been jailed in central Russia. Ksenia Karolina was detained on treason charges. She had donated about $50 to a Ukrainian war effort. Her boyfriend, Chris Van Heerden, says Karolina sent him a letter from jail. I know she's safe. She made that clear to me. She's, she's locked up with two women, an older woman and a younger woman. She's safe. They, they've built a friendship. She has, she has someone to talk to every day. He says Carolina faces up to 20 years in Russian prison. The State Department says it is working to learn more about her case. In the U.S., lawyers for Republican-led states and business groups are urging the Supreme Court to block a federal rule. It's designed to limit harmful smog. NPR's Kerry Johnson reports they argue they're suffering serious costs to comply with the environmental rule. The good neighbor rule is supposed to limit dangerous air pollution that travels across state lines from coal plants and gas pipelines. Environmental advocates say it prevents asthma, lung problems, and early death. But Ohio, Indiana, and West Virginia say the rule is a disaster because it only applies to about half the states in the original plan. At the Supreme Court, liberal justices raised doubts about intervening at this early stage in the case. But several conservatives seem critical of the EPA and its analysis on the good neighbor rule. The justices could act at any time on this dispute from their emergency docket. Carrie Johnson, NPR News, Washington. 
You're listening to NPR News from Washington. I'm Rupa Shanoi. This is WBUR in Boston. Stewart Healthcare says it wants to work with the state on an orderly departure from Massachusetts. In a letter to Governor Healy, Stewart disputes many of the points the governor made in her letter to the company this week. WBUR's Deborah Becker reports. In the letter, Stewart Executive Vice President Dr. Michael Callum counters the governor's contention that the company hasn't been forthcoming. Callum writes, Stewart has worked with the Healy administration and the officials monitoring its hospitals. Callum also says Stewart has provided financial information to the state, but the state refused to accept redacted copies protecting proprietary business details. As for the governor's request to work with Stewart on an orderly transition of its seven acute care hospitals, the company says it approached the Healy administration about that in October. Healy has asked Stewart for its financial information by tomorrow. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Deborah Becker. The MBTA is still working on a fix for a damaged cable that caused widespread power outages last week. Those outages last Thursday stopped trains on the green, orange, and blue lines. A T-spokesperson says a backup system is currently powering trains. A faulty joint in an underground cable is to blame. It's expected to be fixed this week, but still needs to be tested. The T initially said last week that the issue was caused by outside factors. Governor Healy has signed an executive order to create a new state transportation task force. The group will make recommendations to finance the state's roads, bridges, and public transit. As WBUR's Ninjor and Wameka reports, a transportation advocacy group wants to make sure the process is inclusive. The group will include business leaders and several state officials. Transit advocates welcome the effort, but some are concerned the task force will lack diversity. Reggie Ramos of Transportation for Massachusetts says the order doesn't properly account for the disability community, organized labor, and communities of color. For us, it is essential for any task force to reflect the diversity of Massachusetts for it to arrive at a holistic and equitable policy recommendations. The executive order includes one spot representing low-income urban areas and one representing low-income rural areas. MassDOT says the task force will engage people who have been underrepresented. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Zaninjor and Wameka. It's 7.06. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Mass General Brigham Health Plan, offering innovative plans, comprehensive coverage, and a broad network of doctors, all connected to one of the world's leading healthcare systems. Mass General Brigham Health Plan, with you every day. For more information, call your broker or visit MassGeneralBrighamHealthPlan.org. Charlie McAvoy scored in overtime to lift the Bruins to a 6-5 victory over the Edmonton Oilers last night. Next up, the Bees skate against the Calgary Flames tonight at 9 in Canada. Also tonight, the Celtics look to keep their six-game winning streak alive when they take on the Bulls in Chicago at 8. Mostly sunny today will have highs in the low 40s. Tonight, clouds move in and temperatures fall to around freezing. There's a chance of rain overnight. Then, rain is likely throughout the day tomorrow. Highs will be back in the low 40s. It's 27 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include Schwab, with Schwab investing themes like artificial intelligence, renewable energy, or pet passion. Over 40 themes to choose from. Learn more at schwab.com. This is NPR.
This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm A. Martinez. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. We put some questions to Nikki Haley. The Republican presidential candidate is near the end of the primary in her home state of South Carolina. She is delivering defiant speeches saying she will keep challenging the Republican frontrunner, Donald Trump. People have a right to have their voices heard. And they deserve a real choice, not a Soviet-style election where there's only one candidate and he gets 99% of the vote. We don't anoint kings in this country. We have elections. And Donald Trump, of all people, should know we don't rig elections. That remark was as near as she came to mentioning Trump's effort to overturn his 2020 election defeat. But Haley has challenged Trump more than she did in the past. Yesterday, she came on the line from a campaign bus somewhere near the Savannah River. We are riding through rural South Carolina right now, so hopefully the Internet service will hold up. It mostly did. The former governor and U.N. ambassador said to just call her Nikki. And we followed up on a remark from her speech. She said she was staying in the race even though Trump seems far ahead. I'm campaigning every day until the last person votes because I believe in a better America and a brighter future. You said, I'm campaigning every day until the last person votes. That's pretty clear, but I want to be totally clear. I read this to mean you're in for every Republican primary. Is that right? Well, I think right now the, the furthest we've thought is we've, you know, certainly are going to go past South Carolina, go into Michigan and go into Super Tuesday states. We haven't you know, I haven't sat down and actually thought about what comes after that. But, you know, our goal was, look, after Super Tuesday, between South Carolina and Super Tuesday, another 20 states have voted. And that's, you know, that's more of the representation we want is to get let people's voices be heard. I think what's really important is to know that the majority of Americans dislike Donald Trump and Joe Biden. And there needs to be a new generational leader that can go and stop with the chaos, but actually get us focused on what we need to do to get our country back on track. Do you believe that you could achieve something here for the country, even if you go on to lose every primary that you contest? I hope that I'm giving them a voice. You know, I hope that, you know, that we can go and talk about the fact that people don't think it's normal that under Joe Biden's watch that illegal immigrants are coming across the border and not being stopped. They don't think it's normal that we have wars around the world that are hot spots and continuing to flare up. But under Donald Trump, it's not normal, you know, to criticize the supporters of your opponent. It's not normal to go and criticize members of the military. It's not normal to spend $50 million of campaign contributions on your own personal court cases. It's not normal to side with a thug like Putin over the allies that stood with us at 9-11. And there's so much chaos. We need to bring a sense of normalcy and we need to bring some sanity back. And that's what many Americans want. And that's what I'm trying to give them. In the last few days, you've referred to Trump as a bully. You've said he's getting meaner, that he's getting more offensive. But when I think about that as a political challenge, according to surveys, according to many interviews over time, there are some Republican voters who say this is, in fact, what they want. They think that somebody really rough is, is what is necessary in order to go after the other side, whoever they define the other side as. How do you appeal to voters who think that that's the case? Well, I think that if they believe that, I, you know, I respect that they believe that, but that's not what will win a general election. People don't like when he's you know, when he goes off the teleprompter and says crazy things like he'd rather take Putin's side over our allies. People don't like it when he mocks the military and they see that he's constantly distracted by these court cases. 
I want to follow up on an issue that you raised. You've made it clear that you support NATO and USAID to Ukraine. Uh, former President Trump has spoken differently about it. It's also blocked in Congress. Why do you think it is that a very large part of your party has resisted additional aid to Ukraine? I think it's because Joe Biden has done a terrible job of telling Americans why they should care about Ukraine. I think Congress has done a terrible job of telling Americans the truth about why this matters. The former U.N. ambassador is trying to win over the voters of an increasingly isolationist party. She expressed a belief that if Russia conquers Ukraine, U.S. allies like Poland will be next. This is about preventing war. So the focus is making sure that Ukraine has the equipment and ammunition they need so that they can finish this. They have a great fighting force. And, you know, you look at the comments that Trump said the other day, basically saying any NATO countries that didn't pull their weight, he would not have America defend them. But he doubled down and said any countries who didn't pull their weight, he would actually encourage Putin to invade them. It seems to me that Republican support for funding Ukraine declined when President Trump spoke against it. The party followed him. Would you encourage your fellow Republicans to break from Trump on this? I would encourage my fellow Republicans to understand that we need to prevent war. And the only way we prevent war is if Ukraine defeats Russia in this instance, because otherwise that puts us all at war and the whole focus should be constantly to prevent war. I think it's terrible that Trump has pulled back from Ukraine and that's not good for America. It's only good for Russia. Do you think it would be a calamity for this country if Trump were to regain the presidency? I have a lot of concerns about Trump regaining the presidency. I have even more concerns about Joe Biden being president. I mean, you look at both of these men and all they have done is given us chaos. All they've done is given us division. Now at this point, as Nikki Haley's bus rolled through South Carolina, the cell service got spotty. So you will hear a change in the quality of the call as our conversation continued. When I listen to your wording there, you say you have a lot of concerns about Trump, even more concerns about Biden. It sounds like if in the end we have a choice between Trump and Biden, you're choosing Trump. Is that correct? I think Biden's more dangerous. I think we have seen the fact that, one, his policies are bad. I mean, the fact that we have an open border and he won't stop illegal immigrants from coming, the fact that he's given more corporate welfare um, and gone more towards socialism than any president we've seen in history. And the fact that I think he continues to go and, you know, his mental competency has declined to a level that we should all be worried about. Multiple things there show that he is not in a good state of mind to continue to lead. And that's a problem. People would dispute your characterizations of some of those, but I'll just focus on the mental competency. You yourself have seemed to question former President Trump's mental competency in recent days. Is he any better? I, requ- I, I have problems with both of them. I mean, you look at Donald Trump today versus Donald Trump of 2016, it's different. And I think that we have to go and focus on what the newer generation wants, what we need to do going forward. And it's not having two 80-year-old candidates. I think that's a problem. That's Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley, who spoke with us from a campaign bus on her way to an event yesterday in Beaufort, South Carolina. Early voting is underway across the state, where the primary concludes on Saturday. We have some new numbers today that show just how far and why the opioid crisis has spread in the United States. A RAND Corporation study estimates nearly one out of every two adults knows at least one person who died from an overdose. Joining us to talk about the impact that all these deaths are having on people, the people especially left behind, is reporter Martha Biebinger from WBUR in Boston. Martha, good morning. 
Good morning. Would you just start by telling us a bit more about what the researchers learned? Yes, so Michelle, researchers surveyed more than 2,000 adults, and they used the results of that survey to estimate what's happening across the country. It shows that 125 million adults know someone. In many cases, they know more than one person who's died after an overdose. Now, you might imagine some of those connections are pretty casual, like the friend of a cousin or a high school buddy you didn't stay in touch with. But an estimated 40 million Americans had enough of a relationship to say that the death had an impact on them. And the study says about 12 million people continue to grieve what's described as a devastating loss. Hmm. So it's a, a survey, it's based on the modeling, but just even based on the modeling, those are just pretty devastating figures. Yes. So is this true across the board or does it vary state by state? It does vary, yes. So in states where there are more overdose deaths, like Alabama, Kentucky, Mississippi, Tennessee, and also all of New England where I live, there are more people with a direct connection because there are more deaths, right? So in these areas, researchers worry that the impact of all this collective trauma might be leading to even more suffering. This is Allison Athey, the lead author on the RAND study. This type of bereavement is creating vicious circles within communities where there's a death that spurs suffering, that spurs more deaths, that spurs more suffering, and there's an exponential increase. So Athey says these communities may need some individual strategies to stop that spiral of grief and despair that she's just described that might lead to more deaths. And these strategies might be along the lines of what's often offered to families who lose someone to suicide. So we might sort of have a model to use. And so what might these strategies look like? The researchers are very concerned about the families left behind after a death. They're concerned that they're being left behind in other ways because there's very little public attention or support to help them with their trauma. So they want more support, and the study authors say we also have to stop shaming and blaming people who are addicted to opioids, because that extends then to the friends and family members who survived these deaths. Here's an example of that. This is Leslie Gomes Preston. She heard some very ugly comments about her daughter after she died in 2016. Some people, you hear drugs and they think, well, uh, she must have been a bad person. I've had people say that it's my fault. Some people are just cruel. So these kinds of messages compound grief. They make people want to clam up or isolate instead of heal. And Martha, before we let you go, are researchers concerned about any specific groups of survivors? Children. Children, Michelle. A lot of people who die leave children behind. They're living with grandparents or in foster homes. They weren't part of this research, which only sampled adults. But other research has shown that rates of childhood suicide are even higher in communities where there are lots of overdose deaths. So we know there are more ripple effects beyond what's in the study we've just been talking about. That's Martha Biebinger from WBUR in Boston. Martha, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Michelle. And if you or someone you may know may be considering hurting yourself or are in crisis, call or text 988 to reach the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. This is NPR News.
Good morning. Thanks for starting your Thursday with 90.9 WBUR. We're following news this morning that a U.S.-Russian dual citizen has been arrested in Russia on charges of treason. Also, officials say Britain and Jordan have airdropped four tons of medicine, food, and fuel to a hospital in northern Gaza. And coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, a private company will try to land a spacecraft on the moon today. If it succeeds, it'll be the first U.S. lunar landing in more than five decades. It's 720. WBUR supporters include Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge. Real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. And Scrub-A-Dub Car Wash. Cleaning cars since 1966 with 22 New England locations. Learn more about Scrub-A-Dub Unlimited at Scrub-A-Dub.com. Take a break and have some fun with the news by playing the WBUR crossword puzzle each day. Five letters, digital trash. Two down, south of Ecuador. Play anytime at WBUR.org fun. Five across, biggest toy maker. Four down, rock concert pit. Play the WBUR crossword free every day at WBUR.org fun. Highs in the low 40s today under mostly sunny skies. Tonight, temperatures fall to the low 30s. Overnight, there's a chance of rain and rain showers will likely continue throughout the day tomorrow. Highs will be in the low 40s. It's 28 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from UCSF Health, the human brain is complex. The neurological specialists at UC San Francisco are dedicated to finding new and better ways to treat it. More at ucsfhealth.org slash greatminds. From the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. From JATASA, providing bookkeeping, accounting, and CFO services exclusively to the nonprofit sector. JATASA is committed to serving nonprofits who make the world a better place. J-I-T-A-S-A dot com. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm A. Martinez. Like Ukraine, Georgia is a former Soviet republic knocking on Europe's door. But its candidacy in the European Union is complicated by the treatment of its former leader. NPR's Charles Maines has more from the Georgian capital, Tbilisi. The image on the courtroom video screen was all the more shocking because nearly everyone remembers the man as he used to be. Here was Mikhail Saakashvili, the former president of Georgia, speaking from a prison hospital bed. A politician once famous for his energy and drive now looked ghost-like, his body emaciated and spent. The cause is a point of contention. It's divided Georgian society may impact the country's future, depending on what happens next, argue his closest supporters. The order is to kill him there, slowly. Yulia Lasagna is closer than most. She's Saakashvili's mother. Lasagna says her son was poisoned by the Kremlin with implicit backing from longtime rivals in the current Georgian government. They don't acknowledge the fact that he was poisoned. And they had to start from that. This is Grichicha. Every day, twice a day, Alessania delivers food to her son's prison hospital bed. Eggs, sometimes some um, different vegetables. His food uh, options are very limited. 
Saakashvili is serving six years for abuse of power and faces additional charges that could add more time. Alessanya, like her son, says it's all payback for trying to pull the country out of Moscow's orbit, for trying to remake Georgia into a Western democracy. He was Democrat. That's why he's there in jail. Saakashvili first gained international fame as the leader of Georgia's peaceful Rose Revolution in 2003, setting the country on a pro-Western path with ambitions to join the EU and NATO. He courted the U.S. in particular, a move that soured relations with Russia, the region's traditional power broker, as he noted in an interview with NPR at the time. I think Russians understand that it's not the battlefield between the superpowers. We are a small country. We need to survive in a very complicated geopolitical environment. Yet a brief but disastrous war in 2008 saw Russia seize 20 percent of Georgia's territory, land Moscow still holds to this day. Faced with voter anger over the war and growing questions over his human rights record, Saakashvili was voted out in 2012, losing power to a Russia-friendly oligarch, Bidzina Ivanishvili. And that's where things basically stop. Today, Ivanishvili's Georgia Dream Party remains the dominant force in Georgian politics. Meanwhile, the party Saakashvili founded remains the key opposition voice, despite Saakashvili spending years in exile before his return and arrest in 2021. Well, it's very difficult uh, for the government. Uh, obviously, it is a big headache for us. Nikolos Samkharadze is chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee and a member of the ruling Georgia Dream Party in the parliament. He argues Saakashvili is intentionally starving himself. He's trying to look as if he has some terminal illness so that he could be uh, released. Independent medical exams failed to settle the dispute. Meanwhile, a case on Saakashvili's treatment is winding its way before the European Court of Human Rights, and the EU has issued warnings to Georgia's leaders over Saakashvili's deteriorating health. Will Georgia gain anything if something happens to him? No. Corneli Kakacha of the Georgian Institute of Politics says the optics of Saakashvili's mistreatment don't help when Georgia's future with the West is up for discussion. Whatever he's doing, deliberately or deliberately, the risk is there. Last December, the country was granted EU candidate status, clearing a first hurdle towards a long road of negotiations to join the EU. But even as Georgians rallied in celebration, EU officials warned that membership rests on Georgia's bitter political infighting coming to an end. Elections next fall may resolve that, but for now, Saakashvili remains in prison, and his mother, Yulia Alessanya, wonders how long he can survive. He's very strong morally, you know. He's ready to fight till the last moment. And with that, she set off to deliver the former president another meal. Charles Maines, NPR News, Tbilisi, Georgia. A museum in Avalon, Mississippi, was destroyed by a fire yesterday. It honored the legendary blues man John Hurt. NPR's Netta Ulibi spoke to the musician's granddaughter. The Mississippi John Hurt Museum was a sharecropper shack with a tin roof, 200 years old. It was filled with memorabilia, all of it now gone. Everything, the furniture he had as a child. Mary Frances Hurt runs her grandfather's foundation and his museum, which attracted blues fans from all over the world. Mississippi John Hurt taught himself to play the guitar when he was only nine years old. At times, he could not afford his own guitar and had to borrow instruments from others. 
songs heard recorded in the late 1920s enraptured folk music enthusiasts three decades later. Make me down, pat it on your floor. Make me down. Before he died at the age of 73, Mississippi John Hurt played before thousands of fans at the Newport Folk Festival. His dexterous, dynamic approach to the blues was lovingly recorded by producers and archivists. Hurt's granddaughter lives in Illinois. She had not seen the damage to his museum when we spoke. I talked to the curator. It is burned to the ground. He called me with tears in his voice. He said that it's a mess. It's a devastating mess. Mary Frances Hurt believes it may have been arson. Local authorities told NPR no foul play is suspected at this time. Still, her worries about preserving local black history in her grandfather's old hometown. I read this song about the hometown Avalon. Avalon was immortalized in this Mississippi John Hurt song called Avalon Blues. Recently, his granddaughter says a local black cemetery was encroached upon when the county widened the road. Now that the museum has burned down, she says, a church is the only thing left marking Avalon's history as a formerly all-African-American town. Avalon, my hometown, oh yeah, oh my mind. Neto Ulippi, NPR News. Avalon, my hometown, always on my mind. Put them all in the Avalon, won't be there all the time. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next, then coming up at 7.45 on WBUR's Morning Edition. After losing a major label record deal following a series of anti-Semitic comments, the artist formerly known as Kanye West is now at number one on the Billboard 200 Albums Chart. It's 7.29. Join us at City Space on Wednesday, March 6th, a few days before the Oscars, for a conversation with New Yorker writer Michael Shulman. He'll be talking about his book chronicling the last century of scandals, drama, and secrets from Hollywood's biggest night. Tickets are at wbwar.org slash events. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by ThoughtForms Custom Builders, committed to building high-performance, healthy homes and spaces that bring people together, supporting Nens's John Ogden Youth and Introductory Programming. Learn more at thoughtforms-corp.com and nensa.net. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. The chairman of the House Select Committee on China has arrived in Taiwan, where he's leading a delegation of congressional lawmakers to show U.S. support to the island. The people of Taiwan should be confident that America stands with them, uh, even as we sort through a, you know, a, a very intense political uh, uh, season domestically. That's Chairman Mike Gallagher, a Republican from Wisconsin. The ranking Democrat on the House Oversight Committee, Jamie Raskin of Maryland, says the indictment of a former FBI informant for making false statements about President Biden and his son Hunter should end the Republicans' impeachment inquiry of the president. Alexander Smirnoff is accused of lying about Biden and his son, each receiving $5 million in payments from Ukrainian energy company Burisma. Hunter Biden once sat on the company's board. The Justice Department says Smirnov told the agency officials with links to Russian intelligence in part were behind that claim. Here's Raskin speaking to reporters yesterday. It appears like the whole thing is not only 
obviously false and fraud fraudulent, but a product of Russian disinformation and propaganda. House Republicans say the impeachment inquiry into the president will continue. Wall Street futures are mostly lower this morning. This is NPR News from Washington. This is WBWAR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Boston City Councilors are making plans in case two local hospitals go under. The for-profit Stewart Healthcare owns Kearney Hospital in Dorchester and St. Elizabeth's in Brighton. Stewart said last month that its financial difficulties put its operations in jeopardy. Governor Healy has suggested the company leave the hospital business in the state. City Councilor Liz Braden and two colleagues organized a hearing today to brainstorm ways to continue patient care regardless of what happens with Stewart. It's not like a restaurant that you can close it up and open it again in 10, you know, in 10 months' time. People need care now, and we can't just walk away and say, oh, tough. Braden says other teaching hospitals in the area have told her they don't have the capacity to take on new patients. The city is also exploring ways to boost capacity at local community health centers. A housing watchdog group is suing 20 Boston landlords, saying they refused low-income housing vouchers as required by law. WBUR's John Bender reports. The nonprofit Housing Rights Initiative spent a year reaching out to area landlords posing as potential renters with Section 8 vouchers. It documented the alleged refusals, the subject of the complaint in its lawsuit. Aaron Carr is the group's executive director. So what you're seeing here in the lawsuit is actually the tip of a very discriminatory iceberg. And one thing to keep in mind here is that housing discrimination is not an isolated incident. It is part of an industry-wide problem. The nonprofit brought a similar suit in New York. The local trade association, Mass Landlords, says though none of its members are named defendants, the state could help by providing better training to landlords on how to navigate housing laws. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm John Bender. Tonight, UMass Lowell will honor the first black professional basketball player. Harry Bucky Lou played with the Pawtucketville Athletic Club in Lowell. It was part of the New England Basketball League. Biographer Chris Boucher wrote a book on Bucky Lou. He started playing in Lowell in 1902 as the first black player in an integrated game. He stayed in the game another 25 years. He went on to become the first black professional manager, coach, owner, referee. He was also the first uh, black coach of an integrated team. A plaque honoring Lou will be presented to his granddaughter before tonight's UMass Lowell men's basketball game. It's 734. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com. The Bruins beat one of the strongest teams in the NHL last night in Canada. Boston scored in overtime to claim a 6-5 win over the Edmonton Oilers. Next up, the Bees stay in Canada to take on the Calgary Flames tonight at 9. In NBA action, the Celtics play the Bulls in Chicago tonight at 8. Mostly clear skies today. Highs will be in the low 40s. It grows overcast tonight and will have temperatures around freezing. There's a chance of rain overnight and showers are likely throughout the day tomorrow. Highs will be in the low 40s. It's 29 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Public Welfare Foundation committed to advancing a transformative approach to justice that is community-led, restorative, and racially just. Learn more at publicwelfare.org. From the Lodestar Foundation, 
inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org and from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. And I'm Martinez in Los Angeles, California. The U.S. may be hours away from landing its first commercial mission on the surface of the moon. This evening, the robotic probe known as Odysseus is scheduled to touch down on the lunar surface. If successful, it would be the first U.S. lunar landing in more than five decades. But as NPR's Jeff Brumfield reports, there's a lot that could go wrong. Three, two... One. The spacecraft was built by a Houston company called Intuitive Machines. It took off from Florida last week. And liftoff. Go SpaceX, go IM-1, and the Odysseus lunar lander. The probe is one of several NASA has paid for. It's costing a little over $100 million for this mission, a relative bargain when it comes to space exploration. Chris Quilty is the CEO of Quilty Space, which analyzes commerce in the final frontier. He says NASA is hoping to encourage business on the moon. They wanted to facilitate the growth of the commercial sector. And you can see that in action, you know, on this intuitive machines flight. On board is a space-aged fabric from a large sportswear company, a few pieces of private art, and a small test of a system to securely back up data on the moon, a place that hackers presumably would have a hard time reaching. NASA is also using Odysseus for several scientific instruments. Their data will help the space agency with its Artemis program to send people back to the moon. But before NASA can realize its ambitions and your pictures can be stored on a lunar hard drive, Odysseus has to stick the landing. Privately funded missions from Israel and Japan have both crashed in recent years, and another NASA-backed mission from the company Astrobotic fell back to Earth last month after suffering a fuel leak. Yeah, man, we could really use Neil Armstrong at this point, right? Even though Armstrong and others landed perfectly on the moon in the 1960s and 70s, lunar landings are still tough. Jonathan McDowell is an astronomer with the Smithsonian Observatory. We feel like it's a solved problem, but it's really still cutting edge. Robotic missions like Odysseus must automatically fly themselves down to the surface. They can't use parachutes because there's no air up there. McDowell says Odysseus could well crash like many landers before it, but he says companies are learning from each mistake. Even when they fail, they're not failing ignominiously, I would say. And so, you know, with a certain amount of iteration, a few more tries, I'm confident that they can succeed. Jeff Brumfield, NPR News. For some time now, Taiwan has seen the U.S. as providing its most important security buffer against China. But congressional proposals to direct billions of dollars to Ukraine, Israel, and Taiwan are stalled. And while Taiwanese officials prize close relations with the U.S., skepticism about whether Washington is a reliable security partner is taking root. NPR's Emily Fang tells us more about this from Taipei. Liang Guoyin grew up haunted by the stories of the Dachen Islands, just off China's east coast, where about a third of the 15,000 residents, including Liang's parents, were soldiers fighting the Chinese Communist Party in the early 1950s. Liang says she remembered constant artillery fire and bomb shelters. It was the Cold War. Dachen, and by default Taiwan, was seen by the U.S. as an important post for containing communist China. But in 1955, the Dachin effort was pulled. 
And three-year-old Liang boarded an aircraft carrier belonging to the U.S. Navy's 7th Fleet and sailed to Taiwan. This massive evacuation, transplanting an entire community of Allied soldiers and fishermen to Taiwan, represented the close involvement the U.S. has had in the Asian island. It was a Cold War buffer against China. So much so that for much of the 20th century, the U.S. dictated a lot of Taiwan's security policy, including actively stopping Taiwan's then-ruler Chiang Kai-shek from attempting to invade China. Here's Su Shenxiong, a history researcher at Taipei's Academia Sinica Research Institute. In the 1950s, there were lots of American military personnel living in Taiwan. Every time they learned Chiang Kai-shek had plans to invade China, they'd send advisors to talk him out of it or cut off his access to American equipment. When the U.S. broke official ties with Taiwan in 1979, choosing to recognize China as a country instead, Taiwan saw it as a great betrayal. But a close relationship still continues, and American legislation requires the U.S. to support Taiwan's self-defense. Taiwan, for its part, also heavily courts U.S. politicians. Former Taiwanese President Ma Ying-jeou oversaw the opening of closer economic and cultural ties between mainland China and Taiwan. The mainland, of course, doesn't want us to have too much to do with the United States. And yet even he still advocates for strong U.S. ties as a way to maintain Taiwan's sovereignty. U.S. is very important to us, and they basically support our claim and our position. So we'll continue to have close relations with the U.S. But Taiwan's political parties, including that of Ma's, privately are hedging their bets. They've seen the way the U.S. waffles in its support of Ukraine and how it suddenly withdrew from Afghanistan. Now a $95 billion foreign aid bill that includes some funding for Taiwan is stalled. So many on this island are wondering just how trustworthy is the U.S.? During campaigning for Taiwan's last presidential elections this past January, both major parties stressed Taiwan should only rely on itself for security matters. And even independent voters like 29-year-old Kevin Ko told NPR, Taiwan should not put all of its eggs in the U.S. basket because China is getting stronger. I'm not saying top one, but at least top two country in the worldwide. That's true. You have to deal with it. You have to deal with it. American officials have brushed off the skepticism. Here's Laura Rosenberger, chair of the U.S.'s de facto embassy in Taiwan, at a press conference in January after Taiwan's elections. We know that Taiwan is a robust democracy that enjoys freedom of expression and that debate in a free and open society is a natural thing. But polling in Taiwan shows wariness with the U.S. is growing. Xing Xingpan is a sociology professor at Taiwan Suchow University who started an annual poll on Taiwanese views about the U.S. And what she found is panic. Panic about the U.S., U.S. leadership in East Asia, and U.S. security commitment to Taiwan. In 2021, we were surprised that only 45% of the population here trust the United States. Trust that the U.S. will live up to its security assistance commitments to Taiwan, Pan says. When she polled people last year, she found confidence in the U.S. was even lower. Down to 33%, only one-third of the population. And now the U.S. is electing a new president in November. People in Taiwan are watching closely. They don't vote in the U.S., but what the U.S. does impacts them greatly. Emily Fang, NPR News, Taipei, Taiwan. 
This is NPR News. Coming up at the top of the hour here on WBUR's Morning Edition, West Virginia Democratic Senator Joe Manchin talks about his decision not to run for re-election in the Senate or for president. Mostly sunny and low 40s today. Tonight it grows overcast. Temperatures will fall to the low 30s and overnight there's a good chance of rain. Then there's a good chance of rain all day tomorrow. It'll be in the low 40s. It's 29 degrees in Boston. Funding for WBUR's business report comes from Vertex, where cell and genetic therapies teams are using innovation to create and deliver transformative therapies for people living with serious diseases. Learn more about how you can make your mark and shape the future at Vertex. Career opportunities at vrtx.com. Winter tourism is playing an increasingly important role in in the Cape Cod hospitality industry. Tourism officials on the Cape say that's due in part to increased second-home ownership in the area following the pandemic. Paul Nidzwicki is executive director of the Cape Cod Chamber of Commerce. He says more than one-third of the Cape's housing stock is now second homes. So we see a lot of extending of seasons, businesses staying open year-round, and then we get that piece of uh, February vacation starts with uh, the families coming down. So a February vacation, April vacation. Netswicky says the Cape is also seeing a steady increase of tourists during the summer with record numbers in 2021 and 2022. The largest air carrier at Logan Airport is increasing its fees for checked bags by $10. JetBlue flyers will now pay $45 for the first bag checked within 24 hours of departure. The second checked bag will cost $60. The airline tells Boston.com the change is to cover the increased cost of transporting bags. It's 745. Support for NPR comes from the station. And from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com NPR. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive. Nervive Nerve Relief is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at nervivehealth.com. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm A. Martinez. The artist formerly known as Kanye West is back at number one. Who's not entertained by my pain? Who ain't cash a check on my name? When my campaign turned to campaign, I burned eight billion to take off my chains. Kanye's now just yay, and he was dropped from his recording label after making a series of anti-Semitic comments in 2022. Still, his new collaborative album with Ty Dolla Sign called Vultures One debuted on top of the Billboard Albums chart. Manu Sandresen wrote about the record for NPR Music. Manu, so a lot of critics acknowledge that uh, Ye has made some some of the most really important music of the 21st century, but he's also made it difficult for some of his old fans to keep listening and support him. Uh, you got the anti-Semitism, wearing the MAGA hats. I'm wondering, who listens to him now? Who's his audience? Well, I can't speak for everybody, but when I went to his listening party at Long Island, it was surprisingly a lot of kids, um, a lot of kids with their parents, I talked to a few kids who said they found out about Ye through TikTok, which is just like insane to anybody who's over the age of 25. <laughs> and honestly, I think the comments the past few years, the anti-Semitic comments, have only really cut off a slice of his fan base. So is Ye cancel-proof? <sighs> I, I, you know, 
I, I kind of hate that way of thinking about things, but I mean, yeah, it kind of, I think, <laughs> I think he has been a firecracker for years now and it's part of his image rather than something that he has to rehabilitate, if that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, what about the album? Is it any good? I mean, I will say it's actually complete, coherent for once, which is actually a lot to ask of EA these days. Um, <laughs> Uh, the last few years, he has been essentially demoing his albums at listening parties and updating them in real time after they come out. And I think something is actually lost in its completeness to me. I found it a little bit dry. I found it a little bit sterile. It feels a bit like he's trying really hard to say, I can still do this, you know? He is doing some things that uh, are being accused of maybe using unlicensed samples from other people's music. Uh, what's up with that? Yeah, I mean, and this is actually something that isn't entirely new either with Kanye releases. So with the most recent album, Vultures 1, he failed to clear a Donna Summer's sample. And then Ozzy Osbourne also came at him for dropping an uncleared sample of his music on another track. Kanye works in these really erratic, kind of hurried bursts these days. He's very much the equivalent of like a high schooler completing his paper on the final day before it's due. <laughs> Or a journalist. <laughs> yeah. And with that comes a lot of boxes that just failed to get checked. All right. So I mentioned how he lost his recording label. He also lost a partnership with Adidas and a, and a few other brands as well. And that uh, has cost him some cash. Um, a lot riding on this album, though. Could this album and the way it's come out and the success it's had early on, could this help somehow rehabilitate his image? Well, I mean, it's interesting to frame on that because I think he is still making so much money doing it himself. If we're believing this screenshot of a text conversation between Ye and his consultant, Milo Yiannopoulos, uh, he made $19.3 million on Vulture's merch as of this past Monday. And that was just through releasing it through his own website independently. And that's the kind of celebrity that, that doesn't need this kind of language around rehabilitation. You rehab your image if you really are struggling. And I can't speak to his personal matters, but Ye, the artist, seems to be thriving. Manos Andresen wrote about the new Kanye West tied dollar sign album Vultures One for NPR Music. Mano, thanks. Thank you. All that word of mouth couldn't take me out. <laughs> After all of that, your kids in the house going crazy. This is NPR News. It's a Thursday on WBUR. Coming up in about a half hour here on Morning Edition, we'll hear about Best Picture Oscar nominee, The Zone of Interest. It depicts the horrors of Auschwitz under the Nazis using only sound without ever showing the violence of the camp on screen. It's 7.50. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Music Emporium. Guitar sellers for more than 50 years, celebrating the enduring presence of music made on the front porch and center stage, themusicemporium.com, and Scrub-A-Dub Car Wash, cleaning cars since 1966 with 22 New England locations. Learn more about Scrub-A-Dub Unlimited at scrubadub.com. BUR is such a critical part of my life that I just wanted to make sure that BUR is still here for the next generation and the next generation after that. Your legacy is WBUR's future. Learn more at WBUR.org legacy. The people who entertain us, the world in all its wonder, the ideas that spark creativity, joy and inspiration every day on All Things Considered from NPR News. From 4 to 6.30 on WBUR. 
Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Thursday morning. The attorney general in New York says she'll seize property from Donald Trump if he fails to pay his more than $450 million civil fraud fine. Japan says it's pledging long-term support for the reconstruction of Ukraine. And the White House plans to consider using executive action to address issues at the southern U.S. border. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Lyric Opera, presenting Eurydice. This March, travel to the underworld and experience love's unexpected brutality and endearing beauty. Low 40s today under mostly clear skies. It's 30 degrees in Boston. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez. And I'm Michelle Martin. When Hamas rampaged through southern Israel on October 7th, the group took the bodies of some of the people they killed back to Gaza. They are still holding them. The Israeli military killed many Hamas fighters that day also and still holds those bodies. NPR's Greg Myrie tells us that for years now, Israel and Hamas have been retaining the bodies of the dead to use as bargaining chips. Here in central Tel Aviv, I'm at an encampment known as Hostage Square. It's the gathering point for all those seeking the return of Israelis held by Hamas in Gaza. My name is Udi Goran. I'm the cousin of Tal Chaimi, who was murdered on October 7th, and his body was taken to Gaza. Israel says Hamas is still holding more than 130 hostages in Gaza, and at least 31 are dead. Israel tries to determine their fate in multiple ways, by debriefing hostages who've been released, and by analyzing injuries suffered by those who were taken captive. It's a painfully slow process. Goran notes that his 41-year-old cousin left behind a pregnant wife and three young children. It took two months until the army gave us uh, confirmation that they could identify for sure some of his remains. So now Tal is still a hostage, only that he's coming back in a coffin. In turn, Israel holds the bodies of around 1,000 Hamas militants. They were killed after they stormed into southern Israel and slaughtered civilians on October 7th. The Israeli military declined to provide details, such as where those Palestinian remains are being kept or when they might be sent back to Gaza. One thing is clear. The Israeli and Palestinian dead are not likely to return home anytime soon. The basic assumption in Israel is that Hamas will hold on to hostages living or dead as an insurance policy. That's Gershon Baskin, who's Israeli. He's worked as a hostage negotiator. He served as a go-between for the Israeli government and Hamas, which don't talk to each other. Israel also has a long tradition of holding on to Palestinian bodies, says Issam Aruri. He's a Palestinian who runs the Jerusalem Legal Aid and Human Rights Center. Sometimes we feel it is arbitrary. If they feel that this guy is of a kind of value for Hamas that they may pay a price for him or her, they will keep the body for sure. His group compiled an 83-page booklet on this practice of withholding dead bodies as bargaining chips. They even have a name for it, necropolitics. Meanwhile, Israel is trying to get some of its dead back unilaterally. According to the Israeli media, the military has collected 350 bodies in Gaza, many dug up in Palestinian cemeteries, and brought them to Israel. They're then examined at forensic labs to determine if any are the dead Israeli hostages. So far, none has been found. 
Israel subsequently returned some of those bodies to Gaza, wrapped in blue shrouds, for the Palestinians to rebury. NPR's producer in Gaza, Anas Baba, witnessed a truck delivering the bodies for reburial. I was wearing a face mask, but the smell was beyond any description. Eighty bodies, some of which had decomposed. He spoke with Palestinians looking for loved ones. I saw Isa, a grieving father. He was wishing for only one thing, that the father could be relieved from all of the torment of losing his son. In Israel, the government says the dead hostages held by Hamas include two Israeli soldiers killed in Gaza way back in 2014. Gershon Baskin, the hostage negotiator, tried many times to get those bodies back. Israel has held up to hundreds of Palestinian bodies over the years and tried to negotiate them. Initially, the Israeli plan was bodies for bodies, and Hamas never took that bait. They were never interested in it. Baskin asked Hamas why they rejected a lopsided exchange in their favor. And they said to me, according to our faith, their souls are already in paradise. They're already in heaven. It doesn't matter where their remains are. They're buried. Standoffs like these have been part of the conflict for decades. Israel has several cemeteries dedicated to Palestinians who died during attacks against Israel. The simple grave sites do not have names on them, just numbers. Palestinians call them the cemeteries of numbers. Issam Aruri, the Palestinian human rights lawyer, says his group has documented 256 bodies in these cemeteries. He first began this work in 2008. The first case actually was a cousin of mine. The argument that we used in the court at the time, you know, his mother was 80, his father was 85, and their last wish is to bury their son before they die, and we succeeded to release the body. But in many cases, Palestinians haven't been able to get the bodies back. Saleh Barghouti was wanted by Israel when he was shot dead by the military in 2018 in the West Bank city of Ramallah. Nearly six years later, his mother, Suhair Barghouti, still doesn't know where his body is. I know that it can be in the cemetery of the numbers or it could be still in the morgue. I, as a mother, would like to know where because I'm boiling inside, not knowing where the dead body of my beloved son is. We met in her living room. It's a shrine filled with posters of her sons and her late husband, all involved to varying degrees in the conflict and linked to Hamas. The 64-year-old widow says she was arrested in October, then released five weeks later as part of an exchange for some of the Israeli hostages. Both Israelis and Palestinians see the withholding of their dead as insults to Jewish and Islamic tradition. Both religions seek swift burials, often on the day of death. Again, Gershon Baskin. Muslims want to bury in the same day, before sundown. Jews will bury before midnight. Islam and Judaism are so similar in so many aspects, and this is one of them. Back at Hostage Square in Tel Aviv, Udi Gorin accepts the priority of getting the living hostages released first. But he says his cousin, Tal Haimi, still deserves a proper funeral. We want to get my cousin's body back to be buried at home in his kibbutz where he was born and raised and where he chose to raise a family and where he died defending the kibbutz. 
the family has no idea when that day might come. Greg Myrie, NPR News. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm A. Martinez. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Clark, where you can begin your kitchen project by exploring Sub-Zero and Wolf appliances. Details about showrooms in Boston and Milford at clarkliving.com. I'm executive producer of podcasts Ben Brock Johnson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The White House is considering executive action to deal with the border using immigration powers enacted under former President Donald Trump. It's Thursday, February 22nd. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, President Biden's younger brother testified to a Republican-led impeachment inquiry that Joe Biden never had any involvement in his family's business dealings. Also this hour. I didn't want to be a spoiler. I just didn't want to be a situation to where I've handicap on one side or the other. West Virginia Democratic Senator Joe Manchin explains why he isn't running for re-election in Congress or for president. Plus how black Bostonians in the 19th century helped thousands of people escape enslavement in the South. I'm not going to say there's no underground railroad without Boston, but I will say this. Boston really is like the hub, the capital of the abolitionist movement. Mostly sunny and low 40s today. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. The United Kingdom and Jordan have airdropped aid into Gaza. Jordan has done this before, about a dozen times, but this is the first time Jordanian planes have dropped British aid into the occupied territory. NPR's Lauren Freyer has more from London. The U.K. Foreign Office says Jordanian Air Force planes airdropped U.K.-funded medicine, fuel and food directly to Tal al-Hawa Hospital in northern Gaza. It says the four-metric-ton shipment is equipped with GPS so that officials can track exactly where it's distributed. The United Nations says Israeli restrictions, fighting and a breakdown of order on the ground have made it difficult to deliver aid by land. Convoys have had to turn back from northern Gaza in recent days. The Jordanian military says this was its 12th aid drop so far. In addition to its own aid, Jordan is helping to deliver about $1.3 million of UK aid to Gaza. Lauren Fryer, NPR News, London. House Republicans are continuing their impeachment probe into the president despite new criminal charges against a central witness in the case. He's accused by prosecutors of lying about the claims at the heart of the inquiry. NPR's Eric McDaniel reports President Biden's brother, James, spoke behind closed doors to House lawmakers yesterday. Republicans claim so far without evidence that Joe Biden was involved in his family's foreign business dealings. It's why Republicans called his brother James to appear before them, though he said repeatedly that the now president has not been involved at all. Here's lead investigator Republican Jim Jordan of Ohio on the charges against a central witness. Well, I mean, it is what it is, so... uh doesn't change the fundamental facts. House Republicans are eager to set up a contrast with GOP frontrunner, former President Donald Trump, who's facing more than 90 criminal charges ahead of a general election. 
But it remains to be seen whether Republicans have the near unanimous support within the caucus that they'd need to impeach Joe Biden. Eric McDaniel, NPR News, Washington. An American company is hoping to make the first commercial landing on the surface of the moon. As NPR's Jeff Brumfield reports, NASA has invested heavily in this mission. The robotic spacecraft called Odysseus is orbiting just a few miles above the lunar surface. It was built by Houston-based Intuitive Machines as part of a NASA program to encourage private spaceflight to the moon. Later today, Odysseus will slowly descend to a crater near the lunar south pole. Things have gone smoothly so far, but a smooth landing is far from assured. Several missions have crashed into the moon in recent years. Jeff Brumfield, NPR News. There are continued reports this morning of cellular service outages across the U.S. The tracking website Down Detector says major cell providers are affected, including AT&T, Verizon, and T-Mobile. Some jurisdictions are saying people may have trouble placing 911 calls from their cell phones. There are cautions from officials from San Francisco to Erie, Pennsylvania. You're listening to NPR. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Congressman Stephen Lynch says he's prepared to expand federal investigations into Stewart Healthcare if the company does not cooperate with public officials. Stewart operates seven Massachusetts hospitals and is in severe financial distress. WBUR's Priyanka Dale McCluskey has more. Stewart officials say they're cooperating with state and federal officials, but Representative Lynch says that's not true. Despite their statements to the contrary, they have not been cooperative, they have not been collaborative in terms of giving us uh, the information that we need to make important decisions with respect to the health care of the constituents that we represent. Governor Maura Healey has ordered Stewart to disclose detailed financial documents by the end of the week. Lynch says if Stewart doesn't comply, he could use Congress's subpoena power to seek that information. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Priyanka Dayal-McCluskey. The governor's council could vote as soon as next week on Governor Healey's pick to the state's highest court. Judge Gabrielle Wolohosian faced hours of questions yesterday about how she would serve on the Supreme Judicial Court. She's served on the state appeals court since 2008. She's also a former domestic partner of Governor Healy. Governor's Council member Tara Jacobs said she's struggling with the optics of that situation. There's the regional inequity element of it that we have no representation at the SJC. And was there an equal opportunity across the board for those who weren't in, you know, what could be called a deep insider. Wolohosian responded that the selection process was similar to what she experienced in the past. So I understand your concern about the optics, but sitting from my chair, I have done everything like every other candidate. Governor Healy has said the couple's relationship did not play a role in her decision. A group of Harvard alumni is suing the university over claims the school's failure failure to address anti-Semitism on campus is devaluing their diplomas. The 10 alumni say Harvard repeatedly failed to address anti-Semitism on campus well before Hamas's October 7th attacks. The group wants Harvard to compensate them for their education. They also want the school to fire staff who engage in what they claim is anti-Semitic propaganda. 
A new study from Harvard's T.H. Chan School of Public Health finds exposure to air pollution can increase the risk of heart attacks and strokes in seniors. The researchers compared seniors' hospital records against their exposure to tiny air particles. Those particles come from sources like coal and car exhaust. Joel Schwartz was one of the study's authors. When people breathe it, it produces the kinds of things that produce all of the diseases of aging, because aging is mostly due to too much inflammation in the body. The study also found the impacts fall disproportionately on people who live in disadvantaged neighborhoods. It's 8.07. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include Charles Schwab, committed to putting clients first with financial consultants ready to serve clients and 24-7 live help. Learn more at schwab.com and the listeners who support this NPR station. The Celtics look to keep the wins coming as they head to Chicago to take on the Bulls. Game time is 8 p.m. And it was an exciting finish on the ice in Canada last night as the Bruins scored in overtime to beat the Edmonton Oilers by one. Final score was 6-5. to five. The Bees stay in Canada to skate against the Calgary Flames tonight at 9. Mostly sunny today. We'll have highs in the low 40s. Tonight, clouds move in and temperatures fall to around freezing. There's a chance of rain overnight. Then rain is likely throughout the day tomorrow. Highs will be back in the low 40s. It's 31 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez in Los Angeles, California. And I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. Senator Joe Manchin, the West Virginia Democrat, has often made news by announcing what he isn't going to do. Over the course of the Biden presidency, Manchin withheld his support for legislation that was central to the president's agenda, federal voting rights, climate change, the social safety net, some tax reform. And now Manchin has made news once again with the announcement that he will not seek the presidency this fall in a contemplated third-party run. We wanted to hear more about this. So Senator Manchin is on the line with us now. Good morning, Senator. Thank you for joining us. Good morning, Michelle. How are you? I'm good. So was there some single factor that made the decision for you about the presidential run? Not a single factor. There was a combination of factors. I've tried. I looked at it and we've tried everything to see. And I I just don't fit in the Democrat process the way they are doing things or the Republican process. I've always been independent minded. And uh, so I thought about that. Uh, I just believe right now this timing wasn't right for me, and I didn't want to be a spoiler. Mm. I just didn't want to be a situation to where I've they uh, attribute me taking votes or handicapping one side or the other. So you just said, and you've said before, you are not interested in being a spoiler, and that does tend to be the history of third-party candidates, right? So what role do you envision for yourself? I would speak out to the middle. I mean, for the middle that feels they don't have a voice, if I can be a voice, I can tell you, it's difficult being in the middle. When there was a 50-50 Senate in the last Congress, the 117th Congress, it's not an enviable place to be. I said, oh, you have so much power. What you have is a lot of responsibilities in trying to look at something and balance it out. That means if the Democrats are in control, or in majorities, that means sets the agenda. That doesn't mean everything's right. That means that you cannot just ostracize your Republican colleagues on the other side and we don't need your input. So I made sure that I was always trying to balance out and working with a bipartisan, like-minded group. So you said that you are not ready to endorse the current president, Mr. Biden, for re-election. You said that you're concerned about progressives pushing him too far to the left. So what is the correct? What is your 
plan here? Is it to, are you looking for some specific commitment, some specific template that you're looking for before you're willing to endorse him? I think what President Biden has to look at and his team around him, how did he win in 2020? Look at the rhetoric that was used back then. I'm not extreme. I'm not against production of energy. We need production of energy. We have a balance to be found. I think people believe that he has been gone too far to the left because of people around him. So what do you believe? I do. I've said that. I've told him that. Mm -hmm. Anything other than energy policy? Is it energy policy your main source of difference or other things? Well, I think energy policy, I think basically intrusion in people's lives. I think that, you know, changing positions on, uh, you know, we could have codified Roe v. Wade. We could have codified Roe v. Wade and basically it's 50 years of precedented law. I'm pro-life, but it wasn't pro-life enough. It wasn't pro-choice enough, but it was something that we learned to live with for 50 years. And they wouldn't go back to that because they wanted more and things of that sort. And I think putting, putting ourselves back in a moderate centrist position where people feel comfortable, they don't think they're being pushed and being overregulated and moving things too far to the left. And the other side talks a good game, but they're not doing anything when they were in control. Let's talk about the other side. Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley has spoken of the dangers of what she calls a political herd mentality on the right. And her argument is that extremists have taken over the Republican Party mainly because they're so in the sway of former President Trump. Do you agree with her? I think Nikki is spot on. I think she's been calling it out as it absolutely is. I watched it up close and personal. And when you think about the border, the crisis at the border is the greatest threat we face right now. And I have said that. Mm -hmm. Back in September, they were trying to move. uh, Chuck Schumer and the Democrat leadership was trying to move the aid bill for Ukraine, which I'm totally in support of. I think we must support Ukraine. So he was trying to move that bill. And my Republican friend says, we're not talking and moving any bill until we take care of the border, which I agree with them 100%. So they start working on a bill. I said, okay, you got what we all wanted. We got to secure our border, and now we can put them both together. They, on one day, they were still very supportive and happy about it. Uh, Donald Trump comes out and speaks about the bill, and then they all change. And I said, how can anyone coward to someone knowing that the facts aren't there to support it, knowing that basically this is a political move? And he openly said, I think we'll, we'll take care of that when I get elected. So how do you answer your people back home? Why would you want to be here if you can't have your voice represent your people? So given all that, if the choice is between President Biden and President Trump, what are you going to do? Well, let's just see. I think it's too early to call that one yet. There's an awful lot going on. A lot could happen between now and then. I'm hoping what I have said is there's no way I could support or vote for Donald Trump. Okay. I think it would be very detrimental to our country and mostly to the world standing that we have and throw things in an upheaval. Vladimir Putin understands the strength of NATO more than Donald Trump. Vladimir Putin has done everything he can to destroy NATO and break it up. And when we added two new countries to it, it just went through him like a knife. And if they think that he's going to stop if he's successful in Ukraine, he'll move on. And then we really are to where we're obligated to be in there and fight and put our American men and women's lives in danger. When former President Trump couldn't even say, my heart goes out to the Navalny family, it's wrong. There's nothing right about this. But he keeps very silent and doesn't say a word and seems like he kind of admires the uh, people that operate and govern that way, such as Putin. It scares the bejesus out of me. What about Nikki Haley? Would you consider supporting a Haley candidacy? Well, let's just see see what's out there. I would consider anyone that truly puts their country before themselves and wants to bring people together. But 
When you start denigrating and villainizing other people and hatred and revenge is going to be basically your mode of operation, that's not right. There's nothing normal about that. So I'm looking and hopefully the Joe Biden that I know, the Joe Biden that I've known for a long time, will come back. Let's see what we can do there. So we're, we're looking at so many different things. There's a lot of variations. There's other people out there. No labels might put a team together. That's a, a group that I've been with since they began. Still believe in that. And uh, there's just an awful lot happening. So let's just see what happens. An issue that's been dogging President Biden is his age. Do you think the president is up to the job? Uh, so I don't look at age. I look at basically the person. That's, that's person by person. And with Joe Biden, every time I've been with him, we've talked. I've had no problem whatsoever. And I never walked away thinking, oh, he's not with it. He's out of it. I never had that at all. He's always been right on top. He said, I'll check on this. Let me tell you why I didn't do this and all that. But uh, so I can see on TV, it comes across a little differently than that. And the only thing I can tell you is from my experience, I do not see that as my concern. That is Senator Joe Manchin. He's a Democrat of West Virginia. Senator Manchin, thank you so much for talking with us. I do hope we'll talk again. Well, we will, Michelle, I'm sure. Japan may seem far away from Ukraine, but the two countries share a common neighbor, Russia. That's what brought a delegation from Kyiv to Tokyo this week for a conference on reconstruction in Ukraine. Prime Minister Fumio Kishida pledged his country's long-term support of trade while dozens of Japanese companies signed deals with Ukrainian firms working in agriculture, energy, and infrastructure. Japan's economic assistance is a welcome respite for Ukraine as U.S. military aid falters and after the loss of a key city on Ukraine's eastern front, Avdivka, to Russia. I spoke to Noriyuki Shikata, spokesman for Japan's prime minister, and I asked why Japan is talking about reconstruction during a war that has no end in sight. So that's a challenging situation. But we are seeing Japanese companies trying to invest in agriculture, manufacturing, digital infrastructure, among others. So Japanese people are really committed to supporting Ukraine. And this is led by Prime Minister Kishida after his trip to Ukraine last year in March. And we have been committing ourselves to a sustainable development of Ukrainian economy and society. Why wouldn't Japan help provide military aid, weapons, ammunition? We have some uh, restrictions in terms of sending uh, uh, weapons to countries like Ukraine at this point of time. We believe that uh, given our experience in post-war reconstruction and quake recovery, we think uh, we have a lot to offer. So we have been collaborating with other G7 countries and other OECD or NATO members, and uh, we would be continuing to contribute to uh, recovery and reconstruction of Ukraine for coming years. What happens if Russia achieves their objectives in Ukraine? Well, you know, what we are talking about is we are supporting democracy in Ukraine and we are opposing unilateral attempt to change the status quo in any parts of the world, including Ukraine. We hope that we will continue to closely work with the U.S. government and other like-minded countries who believe in the importance of rule-based international order. We are talking about free and open international order based on the rule of law. 
Japan's prime minister has said Ukraine today could be East Asia tomorrow. What does he mean by that? Well, we have a challenging security landscape in our region. We have been witnessing North Korean nuclear program, and we have been seeing attempts to change the status quo in East China Sea or South China Sea. And we have been following uh, some uh, collaboration between Russia and China or North Korea and Russia. So in that sense, the European security situation is inseparable from that of East Asia. Noriyuki Shikata is Cabinet Secretary for Public Affairs at the Prime Minister's Office in Japan. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much. This is NPR News. Good morning. Thanks for starting your Thursday with WBOR. We're following news this morning that a U.S.-Russian dual citizen has been arrested in Russia on charges of treason. Also, officials say Britain and Jordan have airdropped four tons of medicine, food, and fuel to a hospital in northern Gaza. And coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, the latest on the Republican-led impeachment inquiry into President Biden. The president's younger brother testified for hours yesterday and said Joe Biden was never involved in his family's business dealings. It's 820. WBUR supporters include The Huntington, with John Proctor as the villain, a touching and bitingly funny new comedy, now through March 10th at the Huntington Calderwood Pavilion, HuntingtonTheater.org. You follow the news every day on WBUR, but how well do you really know the news? It's time to play the puzzle. One across, digital trash. Five letters south of Ecuador. Play the WBUR crossword puzzle anytime at WBUR.org slash fun. Five across, biggest toy maker. Four down, rock concert pit. Play the WBUR crossword free every day at WBUR.org slash fun. Highs in the low 40s today under mostly sunny skies. Tonight, temperatures fall to the low 30s. Overnight, there's a chance of rain and rain showers will likely continue throughout the day tomorrow. Highs will be in the low 40s. It's 32 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from your part-time controller specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your part-time controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs remotely or in person at yptc.com NPR. From Indiana University, committed to moving the world forward and working to tackle some of society's biggest challenges, nine campuses, one purpose, creating tomorrow today. More at iu.edu. And from Subaru, who along with its retailers is partnering with Operation Warm to provide more than 150,000 children in need with new necessities like coats, shoes, and socks. Subaru, more than a car company. This is NPR. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm A. Martinez. One of the 10 nominees for the Best Picture Oscar is the Holocaust drama The Zone of Interest. 
It's about the Nazi death camp at Auschwitz, which was also the setting for Steven Spielberg's classic Schindler's List and the recent Hungarian film Son of Saul. But British director Jonathan Glazer set out to make a Holocaust film in which genocide is never shown. It is only heard in the distance in a film that demands that the audience listen. NPR's Bilal Qureshi spoke with its creators. And a note, this piece does discuss some details of the concentration camp. The first scene in the zone of interest shows a picture-perfect German family picnicking by the lake. But this is not just any picnic. The year is 1943, and as they drive home to their villa, it's revealed that the family shares a wall with the extermination camp at Auschwitz. The patriarch is the camp's commanding officer. My name is John Glazer, and I'm the writer and director of The Zone of Interest. Jonathan Glazer is British, and the film is in German. It's inspired by Martin Amis's 2014 novel of the same name. Very early on in the process of writing, I knew that I didn't want to reenact any of the atrocity, you know, any brutality, and that I could interpret it all with sound because I'd committed to tell a story from the perpetrator side of the wall. So even as we see family picnics, meals, and parties, the mass murder on the other side of the wall is always heard. A constant industrial hum occasionally punctuated with gunfire and screams. The way I've been describing it to friends of mine who are interested in seeing some Oscar movies is that it's as much of a bummer as you think it's going to be, but it's doing things formally that made me pay attention to the story in a different way, and I really appreciate that. Sarah Shackett wrote a piece for IndieWire called How the Zone of Interest Uses Our Ears Like No Other Film. It's basically like its own radio play of what, what we know is happening behind these characters. The Zone of Interest keeps the horror of the Holocaust incredibly present by having you be the person who, you know, in your own mind, you create your worst version of what's happening in the camp based on the sound design while these characters are ignoring that. And it creates a very singular experience. Hi, I'm Johnny Byrne. I'm uh, the sound designer on The Zone of Interest. The process of making the film was, we saw it as two films. One is the family drama, and the second film is a film you only hear, and that's a horoscope. And it's the sound that comes from over the wall into the family house. Over the course of a year, sound designer Johnny Byrne and his team traveled across Europe, gathering field recordings and ambient sounds for what they refer to as film two, while Jonathan Glazer and his actors shot the bucolic family film in Poland, film one. It was almost like the, the, the pictures, trying to make them as flat as possible knowing that the sound that I was going to be getting to further down the line was going to be an absolute kind of uh, typhoon of, of horror, really. In order to accurately represent the sound of Auschwitz, I realised pretty early on that I had to research an awful lot and understand what happened, and we had um, the access to the Auschwitz Memorial Museum archives, which has a lot of unpublished material. Things that were specifically mentioned as having a sound, like, you know, the awful sound of the electric fence, and, and I collated all of those into a many hundred-a-page document that became my Bible for what to go and find and record. Many of the film's most unsettling scenes come at night as the flames from the crematorium cast light on the family villa. So, yeah, in the scene we begin with Rudolf Huss standing in his garden smoking a cigar, and you're aware of a faint buzz of the electric fence, and, and you hear guards' voices along the wall to the side of him. And they are um, ushering 
prisoners up to the uh, gas chamber at the end of the garden. And uh, Rudolf walks across the garden and he, he notices the shower tap is dripping in the pool and he turns that off and, and that reveals that you, uh, what you thought was running water is actually more the hum of the incinerator and what you thought was the rattling of, of the shower head is actually trapped prisoners banging on the door of the crematoria and basically what you have is a man smoking a cigar in his garden whilst he's murdering, you know, a thousand people 50 yards away. I mean, it was an awful scene to work on, frankly. In fact, the whole film was pretty awful to work on. But yeah, you know, we had to reproduce that as accurately and obviously without sensation as possible because it's important to say, you know, this happened and, and this is how it happened. But some critics have not appreciated Jonathan Glazer's aesthetic and sonic treatment of the Holocaust. IndieWire's Sarah Shackett says she understands the criticism. That's fair to say. It's also fair to say that like doing it the traditional way is diminishing returns as well. So how do we keep telling these stories in a way that is impactful for new audiences, you know, 70, 80 years after the events? Earlier this week, the Zone of Interest won three BAFTAs, the British equivalent of the Oscars. And while accepting on stage, producer James Wilson said the film was always meant to be more than a period film. A friend wrote me after seeing the film uh, the other day that he couldn't stop thinking about the walls we construct in our lives, which we choose not to look behind. Those walls aren't new from before or during or since the Holocaust. And it seems stark right now that we should care about innocent people being killed in Gaza or Yemen in the same way we think about innocent people being killed in Mariupol or in Israel. I can see how people could propagandize the film on any side of the argument or on any side of the wall. But director Jonathan Glazer says he hopes the film can resist that kind of flattening. Ultimately, because it talks about something more fundamental to what it is to be human, beyond tribe and, and race and so on. It's about our, this capacity we have in us for violence. And, and it would be quite something to be able to evolve as a species out of that impulse in, in, in mind and, and deed, you know. Glazer says the zone of interest is designed to echo our capacity to tune out that which we don't wish to hear, but also our capacity and responsibility to tune in where we must. Bilal Qureshi, NPR News. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next. Then coming up at 8.45 on Morning Edition, we mark Black History Month by remembering how black Americans in Boston worked to free people from enslavement in the South through the Underground Railroad. It's 8.29. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by AL Prime Energy Consultant. Providing wholesale and retail fuel products located in more than 60 communities in and around greater Boston. ALPrime.com. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. The Biden administration is continuing to press Congress to approve money to resupply Ukraine's forces with weapons and ammunition in its fight against Russia. 
Deputy Pentagon Press Secretary Sabrina Singh says Keefe has gone without U.S. military aid since late December. They're continuing to push in the east and in the south, but they need their air defenses, artillery, more ammunition from United States stocks that we were sending almost on a weekly basis to them. Russia invaded Ukraine two years ago this week. A study from the RAND Corporation estimates almost one out of two adults in the U.S. knows someone who died from an opioid overdose. Martha Biebinger with member station WBUR in Boston takes a look at the findings. Researchers surveyed more than 2,000 adults, and they used the results of that survey to estimate what's happening across the country. It shows that 125 million adults know someone. In many cases, they know more than one person who's died after an overdose. Some of those connections are pretty casual, but an estimated 40 million Americans had enough of a relationship to say that the death had an impact on them. States with the highest rates of opioid overdose deaths include Alabama, Kentucky, Tennessee, and ones in New England. This is NPR News. A lot of people in the U.S. are experiencing disruptions to cell phone service this morning. Providers, including AT&T, Verizon, T-Mobile, and Cricket Wireless, are reporting outages. The tracking site Down Detector reports at one point AT&T had more than 60,000 outages in cities that included Atlanta, Houston, and Chicago. It's unclear what caused the disruptions. A New York man who served time for killing his mother has been sentenced to prison for attacking a black woman of Filipino descent while on parole. Here's NPR's Brian Mann. The brutal attack on 65-year-old Vil Makari in 2021 was captured on surveillance video and sparked widespread outrage. Brandon Elliott was arrested for the assault, during which he told Kari, quote, you don't belong here. New York police reported Elliott was a parolee at the time of the attack on supervised release after being incarcerated for the murder of his mother in 2002. Elliott, now 43 years old, pleaded guilty to assaulting Kari and has been sentenced to 15 years behind bars. In a statement, Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg said the crime caused lasting fear in New York's Asian-American and Pacific Islander community, which has seen a spike in hate crimes in recent years. Bragg added, I hope the closure of this case will allow the victim to continue healing. Brian Mann, NPR News, New York. Wall Street futures are mostly higher this morning. I'm Dave Mattingly, NPR News in Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Massachusetts and Rhode Island could soon join a handful of states that allow for so-called human composting. The practice is a more climate-friendly alternative to traditional burial options such as caskets and cremation. The legislatures in both Massachusetts and Rhode Island are taking up the matter for a second time. Seven other states, including Washington, New York and Vermont, have already legalized human composting. A group of Boston residents is suing the city over plans to transform White Stadium in Franklin Park into a home for Boston's professional women's soccer team. Residents, along with the nonprofit Emerald Necklace Conservancy, claim the plans will limit public access to the park. Renee Stacy Welsh lives in the neighborhood and is a plaintiff in the case. We need every green space possible for us to have the ability to go out and learn how to run or how to, how to you know, track soccer. 
whatever it is. And if this comes into our neighborhood and our park, I think those programs, I know those programs will cease to exist. The team's owners are committing millions to renovate White Stadium. This month, city officials moved to slow the project due to public pushback. A housing watchdog group is suing 20 Boston landlords, saying they refused low-income housing vouchers as required by law. WBOR's John Bender reports. The nonprofit Housing Rights Initiative spent a year reaching out to area landlords posing as potential renters with Section 8 vouchers. It documented the alleged refusals, the subject of the complaint in its lawsuit. Aaron Carr is the group's executive director. So what you're seeing here in the lawsuit is actually the tip of a very discriminatory iceberg. And one thing to keep in mind here is that housing discrimination is not an isolated incident. It is part of an industry-wide problem. The nonprofit brought a similar suit in New York. The local trade association, Mass Landlords, says though none of its members are named defendants, the state could help by providing better training to landlords on how to navigate housing laws. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm John Bender. It's 835. WBUR supporters include Boston's How Do You See the World experience with the Maparium Globe. Visit and explore stories about global progress. Tickets at HowDoYouSeeTheWorld.com. The Bruins came back from behind twice to beat the Edmonton Oilers in overtime last night in Canada, 6-5. The Bees are hoping for another win in Canada as they take on the Calgary Flames tonight at 9. In basketball, the Celtics take on the Bulls in Chicago tonight at 8. Mostly clear skies today. Highs will be in the low 40s. It grows overcast tonight and will have temperatures around freezing. There's a chance of rain overnight and showers are likely throughout the day tomorrow. Highs will be in the low 40s. It's 32 degrees in Boston. You're with W. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 find food for meetings and company events with online ordering and 24 7 live support. Learn more at easycater.com. And from Procter Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at alignprobiotics.com. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Ewan Martinez in Los Angeles, California. And I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. President Biden's younger brother, James Biden, was on Capitol Hill yesterday for a deposition with House lawmakers. His appearance was part of the Republican-led impeachment inquiry against the president. This House GOP is forging ahead with that probe, even as new information is emerging about the former FBI informant who's charged with lying about an alleged Biden bribery scheme. NPR Justice correspondent Ryan Lucas is following all of this and is with us now. Good morning, Ryan. Good morning. Okay, so James Biden was questioned behind closed doors. First question I ask is, why him? Like, why was he called? And do we know anything about what he had to say? House Republicans have been trying for a long time now to build an impeachment case against the president. This is largely focused on the theory that he played an active role or benefited somehow from the business dealings of members of the Biden family. Lawmakers haven't turned up concrete evidence of wrongdoing on the president's part, but this explains why House Republicans wanted to hear from the president's younger brother, James Biden, yesterday. Now, as for what he told lawmakers, we know from a copy of his opening statement that he told them that his brother, the president, has never had any involvement or financial interest in James's business dealings. 
Uh, he also told them that he never asked his brother to take any official action on his behalf or on behalf of anyone else for that matter. But again, that's just from his opening statement. He spent hours answering questions behind closed doors, so we don't know all of what was said or whether any new information was turned up. Let's turn now to that former FBI informant. Prosecutors say he has extensive Russian intelligence contacts. What do we know about that? Prosecutors said that this former informant, Alexander Smirnov, has contacts with several foreign intelligence services, but they really did hone in on his contacts with Russia's services. Uh, according to the court papers, Smirnov told his FBI handler that one of his contacts was a Russian who controls a group that conducts assassinations overseas. Another contact is described as the head of a unit of a Russian intelligence service. Prosecutors say Smirnov did disclose these contacts to his FBI handler, so this is not something that he was hiding from the FBI. And former FBI folks tell me that it's these sorts of contacts that would make Smirnov useful to the FBI. Okay, but if that's the case, then why are the prosecutors raising them? Well, they brought all of this up in a detention memo arguing that Smirnov should be locked up pending trial. Ultimately, on that question, a magistrate judge ordered him released on bond. But prosecutors argued that Smirnov's ties to Russian intelligence are not quote-unquote benign. They said that after he was arrested last week in Nevada that he told authorities that individuals linked to Russian intelligence were involved in passing along a story about the president's son, Hunter Biden. Court papers don't specify what that story was, but this does raise questions of whether some of the information that Smirnov was providing the FBI might have been fed by Russian intelligence. Now, we do not have an answer to that question right now. So Republicans did give a lot of credence to Smirnoff's claims against Biden. They are on the record about that. We've seen mm -hmm. many interviews where they did that. So now prosecutors say all that was a lie. So how has this affected this whole impeachment effort? Well, in, in the eyes of Democrats, they say that it's a death blow or should be a death blow for impeachment. But House Republicans have just kind of shrugged it off. The Republican chairman of the Oversight Committee, James Comer, has instead criticized the FBI for its handling of the investigation. Comer and other Republicans have also said that their impeachment inquiry isn't based solely on the bribery allegation. And so what they've done is just kind of forged right ahead. Talking to James Biden yesterday is very much a part of that. They're expected to talk to Hunter Biden next week, also behind closed doors. And Hunter and his business dealings have really been a key focus for Republicans in their impeachment inquiry. That's NPR Justice Correspondent Ryan Lucas. Ryan, thank you. Thank you. This week, Republican Party leaders from around the country are gathering in Maryland for the annual Conservative Political Action Conference, or CPAC. Conservatives with a different vision of the party will convene in Washington, D.C. starting Friday, and we can call that a bit of counter-programming. It's the principal first summit, and it isn't expected to draw Republicans who do not support GOP frontrunner Donald Trump. Heath Mayo is the president and founder of Principles First, which puts on the annual summit, and he's with us now to tell us more about it. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. So I understand that you used to attend CPAC regularly. That was for a few years. I mean, even starting in college, that's what I think you were telling us. What was it that soured you on the event? Yeah, you know, CPAC used to be a place, I think, where traditional conservatives, you know, libertarians, even some independents would get together and really hash out, I think, what it meant to be a conservative. We'd have those debates about what the movement should represent. And I think over time, you know, the people that they invited it devolved into this sort of corrupt and crazy circus that was much more focused, I think, on the, the personalities that were on the stage and the crazy and crazier things that they would say, as opposed to the ideas and the principles that really should define who we are as conservatives. Would you say that that's emblematic of the current Republican Party on the whole as well? I think so. Unfortunately, I think that CPAC has really 
become this really important representation of all the craziness and the corruption in the Republican Party and then also in the broader conservative ecosystem that I think it makes a really good counterpoint for the, the Principles First programming that we're putting on this weekend. When you say corruption, you mean what? I just mean what you see with using funds to pay off your legal bills. Uh, you know, the, the CPAC ticket, I think, is like 300 something bucks or it has been. You know, I don't know why they're charging all these, this money or where it's going, but it's, it's, it's this grift in our politics that we're seeing. People who are using politics as a way to get rich or, or as a career, uh, I think that's something that we're pushing back against. We're trying to get that out of the conservative movement because we think it has been um, a big problem. Okay, say more about what you're trying to accomplish, both with Principles First and also just with this get-together. Sure, yeah. I mean, I, Principles First is, is, is a nationwide effort, I think, to really put those principles back at the center of our politics. We bring together these frustrated, you know, current and former Republicans, maybe even independents, folks that are pulling the lever for Nikki Haley in the primary or they're upset with even both of the party choices, really in a show of force to kind of say that there is this growing contingent of voters out there who are going to be really important Maybe not so much in a Republican primary right now, but definitely in a general election. And I think it's important to bring those folks together and talk about what it is that defines us as a voting contingent, what's important to us, supporting Ukraine, uh, being a strong American presence for our allies around the world, free markets, free people. Those things are important to these voters. And if someone wants to win the White House this November, I think they really need to look seriously about what they're telling these voters and how they're convincing them to vote for them. Okay, so before we let you go, you know, obviously the question of who we vote for or what brings us to our vote is is complicated, but I do have to ask, if Trump wins the GOP nomination, would you encourage people to vote for Biden or just sit it out? I think for me, Donald Trump represents an existential threat, not just to the Republican Party, but to the constitutional principles that, that shape our country. So I personally would be voting for Biden. Um, I think in the, if that were the choice, and I'm encouraging others to just at least get engaged in this election because their voice is going to be very important. Uh, and 2024, I think, is, is, is one of the most important elections that we'll, we'll have. That is Heath Mayo. He is president and founder of Principles First. That's the conservative group hosting an alternative to the CPAC conference. Heath Mayo, thanks so much for talking with us. Thank you. This is NPR News. Coming up in 10 minutes on WBOR, the Marketplace Morning Report tells us about a new poll by a healthcare research group that shows that about two-thirds of voters rate the national economy as either not so good or poor. They cite inflation and the ongoing high cost of housing, healthcare, and everyday expenses. Mostly sunny and low 40s today. Tonight it grows overcast. Temperatures will fall to the low 30s. And overnight there's a chance of rain. Then there's a good chance of rain all day tomorrow. It'll be in the low 40s. It's 32 degrees in Boston. Now in business news, a Dorchester pizza restaurant must pay $105,000 in damages after a racist incident in 2020. The Massachusetts Commission Against Discrimination says an employee at Stash's Pizza called a black customer the N-word and threatened to kill her. Officials tell Boston.com the employee was not the owner of the restaurant. Stash's came under fire last year after reports found the pizza place underpaid and overworked its employees. 
A Cambridge biotech is partnering with a California company to develop gene editing therapies for cystic fibrosis. Intellia Therapeutics will be working with Recode Therapeutics on the tech. The financial terms of the partnership have not been disclosed. A Framingham-based biotech company plans to move its headquarters. BPG Bio is moving into a space on 3rd Avenue in Waltham. The company expects the move to be done around 2025. It says it hopes the move will accelerate development on some of its cancer drugs. It's 846. WBUR supporters include Boston Ballet's Winter Experience, celebrating the evolution of dance with two world premieres. On stage now through March 3rd, tickets at bostonballet.org. And Uncommon Feasts, offering full-service culinary event catering for your distinctive social and corporate gatherings. Gather around. Let's feast. You're listening to WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. It's Black History Month, and this morning we're remembering Boston's role in helping black Americans flee enslavement in the South. Historian Kelly Carter-Jackson is an associate professor at Wellesley College who focuses on slavery and abolition. She's also a historian in residence for the Museum of African American History in Boston. Good morning. Hi. What was Boston's role in the Underground Railroad? I'm not going to say there is no underground railroad without Boston, but I will say this. Boston is deeply, deeply instrumental within the movement. Boston really is like the hub, the capital of the abolitionist movement. It is a crucial city, especially if you are a fugitive slave trying to escape slavery and get to safe haven. Boston was one of the best places to do it. So how did this work? If you were enslaved in the South, did someone, a family member, a friend, tell you about Boston? How did it start? So some people, the goal was just to get north, as far as north as you possibly could. There was a large or sizable black community and abolitionist community that was willing to help get you food, clothing, shelter, a job, a name change, a church home, anything that you sort of needed to survive and either stay in the city or survive for a time being and make your way further north, Boston's community really provided that. Now, of course, we're on the water here, so were people coming on ships? Absolutely. Ships are a part of that as well. There was this rich community of black sailors, of black porters, people that worked the docks. And that network allowed information to pass, not just from city to city, but literally from region of the country from the north all the way down to the south. So Massachusetts was one of the first states to abolish slavery in 1783. Mm -hmm. But what was the atmosphere like for people escaping slavery? Did they have to hide themselves here? Were there Mm. slave catchers here? Yes and no. So it depends depends on when you leave the city. I think if you're leaving in the early 1850s, you're arriving to Boston, you absolutely have to be secretive. People were always worried about being recognized or being captured. Not to me in Enslaved people or fugitive slaves were ever sent back to the South. Boston has one of these records in which, in all of its sort of fugitive slave history, only five enslaved people were ever sent back to their slaveholders, which is an incredible record. Are there aspects we should mention that Boston as a whole could have done better? 
No, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. I mean, uh, it goes without saying that Boston was the first colony to institute the institution of slavery, to make slavery legal. And it was not the best place for Black people to always live. In fact, it was very difficult and very hard. And I think that when you see the Black community in Boston, it is an aspect of Black resilience and Black resistance to white supremacy in the face of all that they were up against. There are tours. We do have monuments to Black history and this time period here in Boston. But what do you think it would do for Bostonians today if this part of Boston's history was better remembered? I think it would change the way that people think of themselves. I think it would change the way that people think about the space that they live in. I think it would change the way people envision leadership in the city, that when you see all of the contributions that Black men and women made to this city, it's not hard or it's not a leap to see them as mayors or governors or elected officials or doctors or businessmen. When I start the field trip that I do with my students, we start right in front of the 54th Massachusetts Regiment, the all-Black regiment from Massachusetts that fought in the Civil War. They themselves were already free. They've put their own freedom on the line to fight for the freedom of others. And that, I think, is the model that Boston has sort of represented for me, the fact that people use their freedom to free somebody else. And I think that legacy should inspire all of us. Historian Kelly Carter-Jackson is an associate professor at Wellesley College. She's also a historian in residence for the Museum of African American History in Boston. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Coming up at the top of the hour on WBUR, it's the BBC News Hour. The look at the implications of Alabama's biggest hospital stopping IVF procedures after a state Supreme Court ruling that frozen embryos have the legal status of children. It's 8:51. And Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. Legacy is a concrete expression of the things that you care the most about. John and Margot Davis are leaving a legacy to WBUR to ensure a strong future. You can too at WBUR.org slash legacy. WBUR supporters include Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at BrooklineBank.com. Member FDIC. Scientists just learned that Myanmar is home to the largest population of an endangered species of ape, thanks to their love songs. Hear the passionate duets of Skywalker Gibbons on All Things Considered from NPR News. From 4 to 6.30 on WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Thursday morning. Officials in the U.K. and Jordan say they dropped four tons of aid to a hospital in northern Gaza this morning. Customers of major cell phone providers, including AT&T, Verizon, and T-Mobile, are experiencing widespread service outages. And a privately operated U.S. spacecraft attempts an unmanned landing on the moon today. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. WBUR supporters include Global Arts Live's Flamenco Festival. In Boston, March 2nd through 13th, experience the passion, power, and beauty 
Tickets at globalartslive.org. Low 40s today under mostly clear skies. It's 32 degrees in Boston. Investors this week thought they saw a bubble in artificial intelligence about to pop. It did not. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Otter.ai. If someone's late to a meeting, Otter's AI-powered meeting assistant catches them up with a real-time meeting summary. More at Otter.ai. And by Fidelity. A dedicated advisor can help create a wealth plan for a full financial picture. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. I'm David Brancaccio in New York. NVIDIA stock is set for a surge up 12% in pre-market trading now after the firm released better-than-expected quarterly results yesterday. The company is riding a wave of demand for its computer chips that are especially good at the intensive processing needed to train artificial intelligence systems. Marketplace's Nancy Marshall-Genzer has more. NVIDIA reported fourth-quarter revenue of about $22 billion. That's up 265% from a year ago, much higher than analysts predicted. NVIDIA's CEO says demand for its chips is surging worldwide, outstripping supply and showing no signs of slowing. NVIDIA's biggest customers are tech giants like Microsoft, Meta, Amazon, and Google. They use NVIDIA chips to crunch data for the AI models they're developing. NVIDIA sales to China could have been higher, though. They were hit by new limits the Biden administration imposed on U.S. exports to China. NVIDIA developed chips just for the Chinese market that comply with those limits. I'm Nancy Marshall-Genzer for Marketplace. In the two days leading up to these blockbuster results, many investors got the willies and had sold off NVIDIA stock. Sure, it was going to be a bust. The stock had fallen 8.5% over the last two days. Well, let's do this morning's numbers. S&P futures up sharply right now, 1.3%. NASDAQ futures up more than 2%. Some of that is the return of AI fever, given the NVIDIA results. A new poll from the nonprofit healthcare research group KFF finds that voters are laser-focused on economic concerns right now, and that reflection on this topic is not making them very happy. About two-thirds of voters rate the national economy as either not so good or poor. Among frustrations, the cost of everyday expenses housing, and health care. Here's Marketplace's Mitchell Hartman. Even though unemployment's low and the stock market's mostly been rising lately, we find economic concerns really at the top of voters' lists and health care costs playing a big role there. KFF's Ashley Kurzinger says here's what people are most worried about being able to afford. Unexpected medical bills, also just the general cost of health care services, families that have difficulty affording their bills each month. Two-thirds of them say they're worried that a medical or dental bill would put them in debt. And even though inflation's moderating, some health-related costs are still rising a lot. Hospital, nursing home, and dental care are up 5 to 8% year-over-year. Non-prescription drugs are up more than 9%. Then there's health insurance, says Andrea Dukas at the Center for American Progress. Premiums have continued to grow. We've seen deductibles increase really dramatically since the advent of high-deductible health plans. The average worker's annual premium for employer-sponsored family health coverage rose more than 7.5% last year, according to KFF, to $6,575. I'm Mitchell Hartman for Marketplace.
Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Progressive Insurance. On the road and at home, customers can simplify their insurance needs and protect what's important by bundling home and auto with Progressive Insurance. Learn more about Progressive and bundling at Progressive.com. And by C3 Generative AI. Verified traceable answers. Secure, hallucination-free, LLM agnostic, IP liability-free. Learn more at C3.ai. And by Charles Schwab. Schwab believes every investor deserves to work with a firm they can count on, with financial consultants ready to serve clients and 24-7 live help. U.S. carbon emissions fell. They declined by 1.8% in 2023, according to new data out this week from the Business Council for Sustainable Energy and Bloomberg. But as Marketplace's Henry Epp reports, there's still a long way to go to meet the climate goals of the U.S. and the world. Can you explain the relationship between commercial real estate and banks, specifically regional banks, and why this has so many people worried? There's actually one bit of a frivolous reason why people are worried in that there was some kind of bad data that went around last year that suggested that the bank's exposure to commercial real estate was higher than it actually is. There was a stat going around that 80% of CRE lending was by regional banks. That's just patently not the case. Now, however, some of those regional banks actually do have high exposure and There are a lot of loan maturities coming in 2024, and some of those will result in losses. Well, that looks like it's kind of happening with uh, NYCB. Is NYCB a sign of things to come? In a way, yes, but I think the story is more nuanced than a lot of headlines suggest. Commercial real estate is a, if you think of it, it really is the physical manifestation of the entire economy. You know, so offices are reflective of office using employment. It really is a mirror to the entire economy, so it does tend to go up and down. But to directly answer your question, it is a sign of things to come because there will be other banks that have challenges, but they're not going to see trouble unless they have other issues going on as well. There's something wrong with their business model. And actually, NYCB had a whole litany of other things going on. We know that a lot of people still work from home. We know that leases are long-term and they're still getting renewed and renegotiated. What about that picture specifically for office does not freak you out? Office is still an extraordinarily important part of the workplace. It is not actually unprecedented what's happening in office. In the 1990s, there was a period of massive consolidation of how companies used office space where They went from about 250 square feet per employee to half of that, around 125 square feet per employee. But office values and rents continued to go up. And the reason is, is that we shifted from manufacturing into services, professional services, and filled the offices up despite the net reduction in demand. So we'll see some more banks get in trouble, but like the other asset classes that are doing well will help them. You know, if they're doing well as a business, you know, they'll they'll fare fairly well and they'll have recovery rates even on their offices or they can extend those maturities out a little further, particularly where they feel like, you know, that office has a good We're from APM, American Public Media. I'm All Things Considered host Lisa Mullins, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.